DiscerningHearts.com presents The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. For over 20 years, Dr. Bunsen has been active in the area of Catholic social communications and education, including writing, editing, and teaching on a variety of topics related to church history, the papacy, the saints, and Catholic culture. He is the faculty chair at the Catholic Distance University, a senior fellow of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, and the author or co-author of over 50 books, including the Encyclopedia of Catholic History and the best-selling biographies of St. Damien of Molokai and St. Kateri Tekakawitha. He also serves as a senior editor for the National Catholic Register and is a senior contributor to EWTN News. The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom, with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Dr. Bunsen, thank you for joining me again. It's a privilege, as always, to be with you, Chris. Especially to continue our conversation on St. John Chrysostom. We find him now in Constantinople. Yes, well, uh, when we left off in our first uh, episode on this remarkable doctor of the church, he had acquired such a reputation for his homilies in Antioch, for his service in Antioch as a priest. Uh, We know, for example, that uh, his homilies brought many to the faith. He had partly saved the city from the wrath of Emperor Theodosius after the affair of the statues. And there were those in the Eastern Empire who saw him as uh, somebody who could be a genuine reformer, Uh, But he was also somebody that they saw that uh, would be worth knowing. And so, in this capacity then, uh, a eunuch by the name of Eutropius, who held a very prominent position in the imperial court in the the great city of Constantinople, the imperial capital of the Eastern Empire, made the suggestion that John should be not just elevated, but should be appointed Archbishop of Constantinople, which would mean that he would be the most powerful and prompt leader of the Christian faith in the whole of the Eastern Empire. What would the reception of his arrival be like for him? Well, there were many who uh, knew of his reputation, and there were others in Antioch who were very unhappy uh, with his departure. He was a, a beloved figure in Antioch, and it was said that he had to depart his city in secret uh, because uh, such a move, leaving the people of Antioch, would cause such uh, unhappiness and, and actual unrest. We have to remember that uh, John had just helped to save much of the city from the wrath of an emperor. And so he was seen as a fairly valuable figure, uh, but he was also, in all seriousness, a, a beloved one. And so his arrival in, in Constantinople... Uh, was greeted uh, with considerable interest on the part of the imperial court. There was somebody who came with a very high reputation. And right from the start, he made it clear that he was going to be a very different kind of archbishop, a very different shepherd over Constantinople. Why? Because he did not want a kind of a massive celebration uh, to accompany his appointment, and then, of course, his his elevation, his consecration. He did not want to be the center of great attention. Instead, uh, he 
went out to the poor. He wanted the, the wealth of the city to be used to take care of the poor. He preached from the very beginning on the need to have love for the poor, to be Christ-like in our embrace of poverty. And from the start, much as he did in, in Antioch, he called on the people of the city from the lowest to the very highest to reform themselves. He complained almost from the start about the conspicuous consumption, the overabundance, the ridiculous displays of wealth and power and pomp among the wealthy and also among the clergy and, of course, at the imperial court itself. So he began, in, to use the term, in a very radical way uh, because, of course, the gospel is rather radical. And this offended some and really began playing out a drama that would continue all the way from when he was first appointed in the fall of 397 to 10 years later with his death. Should we talk about the importance of Constantinople? I mean, what could we relate it to for those who are unfamiliar with the gravitas of this particular city? Sure. Well, with the division of the Roman Empire at the early part of the 4th century, so really from the time of Constantinople's birth under Constantine the Great, obviously the city was named after him, Constantine intended for this new capital in the east to rival Rome. In fact, it was called the New Rome. And it was positioned, ideally, in Constantine's mind, right on the bridge, on the Bosporus, between Europe and Asia, what we now think of today as Istanbul in Turkey. It was immediately a gathering place for the most powerful in the Eastern Empire and realistically across the whole of the Roman Empire. As the Western Empire in the 4th century and beyond began suffering from Gothic invasions, Germanic invasions, and as the city of Rome was in the West gradually eclipsed by another rising city in the West of Mediolanum or Milan, Constantinople became the de facto city, capital city, chief city of the whole of the Roman Empire. So that gives us uh, sort of the political sense of it. But Constantinople also became the greatest trading center in the West. Such a place would also be the home of incredible decadence, of self-indulgence, of dissolute activity for the soul, wouldn't it? It would. Uh, think of a combination of London and Paris and New York and San Francisco with all of their opportunities all of their wealth, and all of their decadence. Now, the empire was continuing in the process of transition, socially, especially religiously. You had many who embraced the Christian faith, not necessarily out of a great zeal, but because they saw this as a path to social and political advancement. Now, the imperial administration was Christian. Constantine was Christian. And his successors were, even some 
go were heretics, as we've talked about with some of the other doctors. So the, the society itself was uneven. It, uh, it had those who continued to embrace the pagan lifestyle. You had those who loved the Christian faith and who tried to live that faith, like John, and he had many supporters in the city. And then you had those who were sort of lukewarm Christians, who, much as Christians are today, uh, were sort of marinating in, in the wider culture and loved the material things. Unfortunately, uh, some of those who preferred the lavish luxuries, the opulence, the decadence, were in the imperial court. Some were even members of the clergy. There were many different temptations for corruption and vice in a city of such wealth, of such beauty, uh, and such opportunities to indulge all of the senses. Talk to us, if you would, then, how his preaching would create great fervor for the faith, but also a tremendous amount of anxiety and animosity towards it. As was his custom, we, John was a truly brilliant homilist. He was a preacher of extraordinary skill. One of his greatest objectives in his preaching was to present scripture. And in presenting scripture, he looked at the life of our Lord and all of the, the beauty of the Gospels and the books of the Bible as a kind of commentary and blueprint for how to live. Pope Benedict XVI, uh, in his beautiful commentary on, on John, described the fact that, for example, in, in one of John's homilies, he was his preaching, he had uh, a discussion of the Acts of the Apostles as the supreme model for society. And what, what Pope Benedict calls uh, the developing a social utopia, the ideal city. And he says that for John, it was a question of giving the city of Constantinople a soul and a Christian faith. He realized that it was not enough to give alms, to help the poor sporadically, but to create an entirely new model society based on the New Testament. For John Chrysostom, this was uh, the early embrace of the church's social doctrine, that we had the ancient world's concept of the polis, of the city, giving way to the new idea of a city inspired entirely by Christian faith. And for him, in that system, the individual Christian, the, the individual person from the slave to the poor to the empress were all part of this new Christian city and all had rights of citizenship. We're all our brothers and sisters uh, with equal rights and equal dignity. Now you can imagine in a society that is built as Constantinople was, as the imperial system was, with many forms of inequality that the Christian faith was trying to remedy, this was not very well received. And John's objections to the opulence of the court, to the corruption of the court, and also to, as I was saying, the conspicuous waste of the wealthy set him uh, against many 
in the city, especially many influential voices. One of them, of course, as we're going to talk about, was the empress herself by the name of Aelia Eudoxia. But it's striking, isn't it, how this message of, of John, uh, which we see in the gospel, what we see also in, in a number of church fathers and doctors, but in John especially, is a theme that has carried forward throughout the whole life of the church in her social teachings, in, you know, in her social doctrine in which we have the love for the poor and the embrace of poverty. And it's one, of course, the, one of the pillars of Pope Francis in, in his discussions. And Francis, in his preaching, is very often reminiscent of John Chrysostom in exhorting the conscience of his time, the conscience of the world, to embrace that poverty. But as, as Pope Benedict XVI noted about John, to build an authentic Christian society. We'll return in just a moment to The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom, with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. This is Chris McGregor. The work of discerning hearts could not continue without your prayers and support. Please consider making a tax-deductible gift. Click Donate at either DiscerningHearts.com or inside the Discerning Hearts free app. Your generous support will allow us to continue our podcast for those on the discerning journey. Thank you and God bless from all of us at Discerning Hearts. The Creed I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation he came down from heaven, and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered death and was buried, and rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. 
So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom, with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. Let's talk about the issues that the Empress in particular would have with him and how that dovetails into everything else that would follow. Yes. Well, at the time, uh, the emperor who had succeeded Theodosius was by the name of Arcadius. And he married at a fairly young age the daughter of one of his generals by the name of Aelia Eudoxia. And Aelia uh, was a very proud woman. She exercised considerable control at the imperial court and loved the extravagances and the, the influence that her position brought. And she felt in many of John's homilies that he was actually preaching directly against her. And John, for his part, uh, could be stern and strict and very difficult uh, to deal with, in part because from the eyes of the empress, he was unbending. Now, in John's eyes, he was proclaiming the truth. And, of course, history has proven that John was correct. She felt that uh, he was criticizing her and therefore uh, was guilty, in a way, of treason against the, the empire. And while Emperor Arcadius was taken up with the, the great affairs and crises and calamities facing the Eastern Empire, uh, Aelia began to scheme against John. And the way she did that was by interfering directly in the ecclesiastical affairs of the church, by conniving with a rival of John Chrysostom, Theophilus, the patriarch of Alexandria, who, for his part, uh, was jealous of the growing power of this fairly new diocese, now archdiocese, this patriarchate soon to be, of Constantinople, at the expense of what he saw were the more traditional of the sees of the church, Alexandria, of course, where he was head, uh, and Jerusalem, and also even Antioch. And so he used a dispute over the what he saw were the needs of several monks in Egypt to be disciplined to form a council against John. And so, on this rather flimsy excuse of John exceeding his authority and even perhaps preaching heresy, Eudoxia and Theophilus were able to create and establish a synod called the Synod of the Oak in 403, in which uh, John was accused basically of heresy, of exceeding his authority, and also of uh, being unkind and unfair to the empress. 
a, a charge, basically, of, of treason. And the, the Synod, of course, was uh, a mere set piece of drama. Its conclusions were already established before the Synod even opened its deliberations just outside of Constantinople. And John uh, was deposed and banished, in part because the Emperor Arcadius who did not really want to be involved with any of these affairs, simply went along with what his wife wanted and what these high-ranking ecclesiastics suggested he should do. What's striking about that, though, is that the people of Constantinople by then had grown to love John. In the six years, here was somebody who had cared for the poor, who had fed the poor, who had been the conscience of the entire Christian empire in calling for the love and care of the forgotten, the weak. And so they were very unhappy with his banishment. As uh, was the custom of the times, there was little that they could do. However, uh, a series of events began uh, that prompted almost his immediate recall. Uh, that the people basically virtually rioted in, in the city. And then there was an earthquake on the very night of his arrest, uh, which was taken by everyone uh, as a sign of God's deep displeasure at their actions. And so uh, the empress implored Arcadius to reinstate John, to bring him back. And the two of them, for a while, had something of a rapprochement. Uh, they got along. This, unfortunately, did not last very long. Talk to us, if you would, Matthew, about his renown as a preacher, in particular the things that he taught. I mean, he is considered, is he not, the doctor of the Eucharist? He is. And there are several ways that we honor John. First, as the greatest preacher in the history of the church, it is obviously for that reason why he is called the Golden Mouth. His skills in rhetoric, his skills as a preacher, as a the homilist, uh, were unsurpassed in probably the, the history, certainly of the early church. And consider that we have talked about some truly great preachers. I think, for example, of St. Ambrose. What he preached about uh, was almost the whole of Christian teaching. But he customarily centered on moral subjects. In other words, he... Uh, talked about how we were to lead the Christian life. And for that, uh, he focused especially on uh, charity, on the virtues, um, and he did most of these things uh, without formal structure. We have a, a vast body of his homilies preserved today. It, it, it's a true blessing for the church. So it's, it's interesting to read his homilies because you can tell that many of them are sort of off the cuff. But um, he focused, again, thematically on how to lead the Christian life, how to lead a moral life. And he was especially gifted in his use of, of Scripture. If we go back to his early days, one of the things that uh, he did as a young man was to take to heart and memorize, to, be, to make part of him, pretty much the whole of the Old and the New Testaments, but especially the New Testaments. Now that, then, 
made it possible for him to be also an accomplished biblical scholar. He was truly gifted in biblical exegesis. In other words, in interpreting and discussing the, the deeper meaning of Scripture. He was certainly a product of what was called the School of Antioch, that we've talked about in other shows, who helped him to focus on the historical method in Scripture. That's sort of the starting place for understanding the literal meaning of Scripture. So John was especially gifted in that. As compared to focusing on some of the more mystical or allegorical interpretations uh, that one found in the school of Alexandria. Now that does not mean that John rejected the allegorical or, or mystical discussions of scripture, but he had those flow from the, the literal interpretation of scripture. In other words, what scripture was saying to us directly. And that was especially powerful for him as a preacher because what it allowed him to do was to take scripture and interpret it directly for the lives of his listeners. And that helped to make him a truly a gifted homilist, but also somebody who could touch the heart uh, and to help people at a time when scripture itself was still not that well known within the, the Christian community to help people take scripture to heart. And then, of course, there was in his homilies and in his writings a great love of theology. And he was not a dogmatic theologian, as, as we think of other ones, for example, Augustine or, or Thomas Aquinas or Bonaventure, in, in part because he was focusing on laying out the truths of the faith to a culture that was still trying to take those truths to heart, uh, but he nevertheless uh, was able to articulate so many of the truths of Scripture, and one of them was on Christology, and another was on the real presence. The two, of course, come together. John held very clearly, very powerfully, that Christ is God and man in one person. Now, he was not a speculative theologian in the sense that he did not uh, examine sort of the profound depths of the union of God and man in Christ. Rather, he taught in an age in which Arianism, the heresy of Arianism, was still something of a danger. He helped people to understand that basic truth, and he presented it with great vigor. Similarly, he did not go into great profound depth in examining uh, the real presence in the Eucharist, but in his preaching and in his doctrine, it is very clear, there's no question, that he taught the real presence and that he also discussed in his use of vocabulary in the actions of the priest uh, he laid out of uh, the doctrine of transubstantiation. So in that sense, he was a, a brilliant preacher who made it clear in his words and in his teaching and in his preaching that Christ was God and man and that the, the real presence of the Eucharist is there and in the actions of the priest, we can see 
transubstantiation at work. So that was a very profound gift to the church, and one that was honored in the, the subsequent centuries, and even from a very short time after his death, uh, by other writers and, and teachers in the church, uh, of course, uh, including Augustine. What would you have us make sure that we understood about him, and what else could we explore if we wanted to undertake it on our own? Well, remember that John died in exile. He had another argument with uh, Ela Eudoxia, who succeeded in having him exiled, and he died uh, in exile, in banishment, uh, in the area of the Caucasus. And that, I think, was the sort of the, the culmination of his life, that he should be willing to face exile for proclaiming what he saw as the truth. And, of course, he, he was marched to his death, quite literally. And his last words were supposedly, glory be to God for all things. So here was someone who loved the priesthood, who loved pastoral care, who put all of his genius at work for the poor, the forgotten, the average Christian, and who is willing to speak out against the culture of his time uh, for God's greater glory and to build that Christian culture, that Christian city, that Christian civilization, exactly as all of us are called to do by Christ. Uh, who would elevate him then as a doctor of the church? He was uh, created a doctor of the church uh, in uh, 1568, in one of the great batches, so to speak, of doctors, one of the second great group of the doctors that, of course, included uh, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas. And the point of that by Pope St. Pius V was at the time of the implementation of the Catholic reform, John was held up as a powerful spokesman for the truths of the faith. But as we've just been talking about, somebody who defended and articulated beautifully transubstantiation that had been under attack by the reformers, and of course the perfect divinity and humanity of Christ, that finding of balance in the church's understanding of our Lord. And in that sense, John as a preacher was a role model for all subsequent preachers who wanted to articulate the, the beauty of the Eucharist uh, to a world that at times has forgotten it. Thank you so much, Dr. Matthew Bunsen. It's a privilege to be with you. You've been listening to The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. To hear and or to download this program along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, and if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation which is fully tax-deductible to support our efforts. But most of all, we pray that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. 